Megan McArdle has been a columnist for the Washington Post since 2018. She has described herself as a right-leaning libertarian. At the same time, she says she's actually a social liberal. Megan McArdle graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in English literature in 1994, worked for several technology startups before getting an MBA from the University of Chicago. She started her professional writing career as a blogger in November of 2001. Since then, Ms. McArdle has written for The Economist, The Atlantic, Newsweek, and Bloomberg View. In a recent column in the Washington Post, writing about today's journalism, she said, quote, we are not trusted because we are not entirely trustworthy, unquote. Megan McArdle, back on March the 28th, 2022, you wrote a column on the media, and here's a paragraph that uh, you wrote. In fact, we in the mainstream have been so busy denouncing fake news that we fail to notice we're developing a we disinformation problem of our own, much of which has stemmed ironically from our efforts to fight disinformation on the right. What were you getting at in that column? Well, you know, I think that uh, the the kind of epic case of this is the Hunter Biden laptop, where in 2016, a narrative took hold after 2016, after Trump was elected, a narrative took hold that what had happened was a combination of Facebook disinformation, Russian interference with the election abetted by the mainstream media, which had amplified this. I know it's not entirely unfair to blame the mainstream media for part of Trump's election, Uh, But I think a more apt place to look is the fact that we gave so much airtime to his outrages. We couldn't get enough of it. And he he basically got billions in free media. And that's that's a pretty powerful aid to a presidential campaign. Um, But what we got obsessed with was disinformation, the idea that voters were confused. And if they hadn't been confused, they would have voted the way we thought they should have, the way most people in the media voted, which was for Hillary Clinton. And so when 2020 comes around and shortly before the election, There's a laptop that seems to belong to Hunter Biden. There are people who are mentioned in the emails that got leaked to the New York Post who confirm, yes, this is an email that I got. Um, And we all go into overdrive. (laughs) We, you know, say, pay no attention to this. It's probably fake. Looks like a classic Russian disinformation campaign. Um, Twitter blocks bans anyone from sharing the story and then bans the suspends the New York Post's account when they try to link to their own story. Facebook sort of downranks the story, although it doesn't ban it outright. Um, come 2022, and it looks like maybe the story was true. The New York Times has reported it seems to be the centerpiece, or at least part of a federal investigation into Hunter Biden's finances and his business dealings. Um, we ignored a true story because we were obsessed with the idea that the right wing was getting away with something, um, was winning elections by basically fooling voters, not in the traditional way that politicians have always fooled voters by promising things that they couldn't possibly deliver, but in a much more dire and and malevolent way. And what we did was we suppressed a, a story that appears to be true in the name of suppressing that disinformation we were so afraid of. What do you think the impact is has been on anything? Well, I mean, number one, I think there's an impact on us. We didn't report a true story. And that should always, that was an important story. There was a story that, that matters. I, I, I do think there are concerns reading through these emails about Biden's involvement. My personal take is that it's very unlikely that Biden is involved, but it's something that I think has to be, has to be investigated. Um, I think number two, though, is there's the trust problem. And I know this as someone who's more of a right-leaning columnist traditionally. Um, I am not, you know, an, an ultra-Trumpy conservative, um, which places me somewhat at odds with the movement. But that's where I came out of. Um, and one of the things that has happened that happened in 2016 was when I was saying I was never Trump, and I was saying Trump is saying things he's catering to racists. This is not acceptable. My readers would fire back with, they called Bush a racist. They called Mitt Romney a racist. And that was true. And I said, but I didn't say those things. And now I'm saying this. You should trust it because I didn't. But, you know, we, we used up a word that we needed for Trump. We used it on George Bush and Mitt Romney. 
Um, and there's that that broad trust problem that we have. And we obsess about Fox News. We obsess about you know misinformation. We obsess about why they're they're being fooled into not trusting us. Well. I wouldn't trust anyone who talked about me and my friends the way the media talks about conservatives. Um, I would assume that they they were biased against me and that they weren't going to be fair to any, you know, that they weren't telling me the whole story. And when we decide not to report on a laptop belonging that appears to belong to the son of, of the presidential candidate. And by the way, I really I'm just deeply skeptical that we would have the same reticence if that laptop had belonged to Donald Trump Jr. Um, we destroy any case that we might want to make that you should trust us, that you should take the facts that we print seriously because People don't because we, we, in fact, don't print things that make the team that we are increasingly we look like we increasingly look like we are playing for a political team and that we don't always say the things that don't flatter our team. What was and that's the, a big problem? What was the reaction to this particular column uh, in the comments that came to you? Um, well, look, I think predictably. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people on the left were very angry at me. Um, you know, a lot of people on the right were actually very angry at me, too, because I said, you know, I think some of the rabbit holes that some of the right wing outlets have gone down with the stop the steal stuff is worse than anything that the mainstream media got into with the, you know, Trump's you know, much vaunted and never proved Russia connections. Um, that, that claiming falsely that the election was stolen with no evidence of it um, is worse. But so conservatives are mad at me. But of course, the left is mad at me for um, the offense of both sides. In. <laughs> this is what, when when you say, hey, guys, we have a problem. And even though I identify as on the right and on the left, I'm still I've always worked in the mainstream media. I have never worked in, in ideological media. I consider myself a mainstream media journalist. I think that, that mainstream media has a lot of strengths that I think, um, you know, aren't always sadly mirrored in right wing journalism. Um, I wish that the systems were more parallel, but I think that, in fact, there are issues with the way that a lot of things get reported in ideological media for a variety of reasons we can get into if you care. But um, anyway, I, I would go back and say, you know, I, I, I think we made a mistake. Um, and the, the, the left really didn't like that. What they, want, what they want to hear is just that it's all the conservatives' fault, right? It's what we all want to hear when we're in a conflict, <laughs> is that the only person who has a problem is the other person. <laughs> and no, in fact, you know, this is it's so funny. Over the years, I've, I've more than once heard from people who do marriage counseling for a living. The first time I heard it was actually from a divorce lawyer I was sitting next to on a plane. Um, and he said, the, this was in 2015, I think, said the 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 dynamics just remind him so much of really toxic bad marriages where you get to the point where people are less focused on getting stuff for themselves than they are of just destroying the other person right it's like i will sell our house at a loss if it means that the loss hurts them more <laughs> and um and i've heard this now from you know marriage counselors and other people that you know we're in this, this the same kind of toxic dynamic. And I think the thing you have to remember about a marriage, right? No relationship ever goes wrong with only one person. It's always a dynamic. Um, and the other thing is that there's no divorce court for countries. We're not getting out of this, which means we've got to find a way to fix this relationship. It's not optional because there is no way that you can separate from the, the, the other side. And I think there is this fantasy on both the left and the right Um of like they'll just wake up one day and the other side won't be there. Um, on the left, this takes the form of believing that those people will, are all going to die because they're old, which is really kind of a gross way to talk about your fellow citizens as I'm just waiting for them to croak. Um, and on, on the right, it takes more of the fantasy of that, in fact, they're, they're a kind of hidden majority. They're not. They're about 50% of the country, and the left is about 50% of the country. Broadly speaking, you know, and most people are not as extreme as the, the people, you know, who identify themselves most strongly with the terms right or left. Um, but broadly, it's a spectrum, and it's, it's split about 50-50, which is what you would expect because in a two-party political system. Um, and they're not going away. We got to live with them. 
you got to find accommodations that let everyone live together with a reasonable degree of of harmony. There's not there's not a plan B. When the Washington Post hired you, what reason did they give that they were interested in having a right leaning libertarian as a columnist? <laughs> well, you know, I think um, I represent certainly a strain of conservatism. But I also do stuff that isn't um, that isn't just politics, and I think that was a, a big part of what people are interested in. You know, I have I, I do some business, um, still trying to figure out how to do that for the Washington Post audience because they're not necessarily that interested. In I'm like fascinating accounting story, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, they, you know. I have a weird background, which is that I started as a blogger, which meant I was always only writing the things that pleased myself. And then I, the Atlantic hired me to blog. And I was still just kind of writing anything that struck me. Now, I was writing based on feedback of what people were interested in. So in 2002, and again in 2008, what people were really interested in was finance. And as it happens, I have an MBA, so I was somewhat equipped to talk about that. Other times, what they're really interested in is politics, or for the past few years, COVID. I wrote a lot about that. I have a background in some healthcare and statistics and so forth. Um, but because of that, I have a kind of broader brief than most columnists. I have a broader area of coverage, and I think I think they liked that. Um, there's things that I don't write about. For example, I have basically no opinions on foreign policy because I supported the Iraq War got that disastrously wrong and thought, I don't really know enough about this subject to form an opinion. And I probably, if I were to do that, I would have to stop doing all the other stuff I'm interested in. And so I just decided I don't have opinions on foreign policy. I mean, I've broad opinions. I think it's clear that Russia is the bad guy in the Ukrainian conflict, but I don't know what the United States should do. Um, and I try not to opine on things like that, but in areas where I feel like I can add some value, which is mostly business, politics, public policy, I have a lot of opinions on a lot of things, which is a, a good trait in a columnist. When you were a junior in college uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, you say that you uh, well, you had been a canvasser for the Public Interest Research Group, funded, founded by Ralph Nader, not funded, but founded. And then you said that it was the most deceptive, evil place I've ever worked. What did, yes. why, why did you say that? Look, the structure of all of these canvas organizations is that most of the money they raise goes to the canvasser, um, which is very much not clear to the people who give money to people who come to their doors. Um, and that's one problem. The other problem is that um, the incentive, the way things are structured, uh, or at least were structured when I was there, was that they would pay you a certain amount every week, and then there would be a bonus at the end of the summer if you stayed through the end of the summer. And what they had incentive to do then was to arrange things so that you would quit right before the bonus was due. Um, I have never – it's not that this is, they're the only organization that's ever thought of this. This is a lot of – there's a lot of shady um, things going on there. But this was a nonprofit, and I was kind of shocked. <laughs> um, you know, I can't prove this, that this happened, but it was pretty clear to me what was going on when suddenly I moved from, I was one of their better canvassers. I raised a lot of money for the Clean Water Act, um, reauthorization of the Clean Water Act. Um, and when suddenly I went from having good territory to literally I spent a week canvassing um, a, an area where it was basically mostly families on welfare. And... I feel really bad about that in retrospect. This is the other thing is that I think it made me worse. And I, it's, I learned a lot from the experience. And one of the things that I learned and something that I think about a lot as a columnist um, is a variant on what Richard Feynman, the physicist, said. The easiest person to fool is you. You know, we have this idea that slick salesmen are – they're lying. And they're not. What they are is they convince themselves of their own pattern. They genuinely, they really the best salesmen genuinely believe that whatever their product is, is going to be the best thing ever for you. Um, and I think about canvassing that spot. I made my quota, which was shocking. I don't, I, I don't, you know, my quota was $75 a night, but I was, I was desperate. I had like, I was so close to the end of the summer. Um, 
but I made my quota by like people would give me 25 cents and I would take it. And I felt good about the fact that I was so persuasive. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. How does a ultra-liberal young person living on the ultra-liberal Upper West Side of New York become a libertarian or a right-leaning anything? Um, I think that perk experience had something to do with it, but I think by then the migration had already happened. Um, I think the moment I knew that I was different from the people around me, (laughs) I was reading P.J. O'Rourke's book, Parliament of Horrors, which remains, though the details are dated, remains uh, the best book on American politics I've ever read, also the funniest. Um, And it was hilarious. And I was laughing out loud and people, you know, my boyfriend, my roommates would ask me what I was laughing at and I would read passages and they would just say, I I don't get why that's funny. Um, That's just mean, right? Um, And I thought, oh, something has shifted here. Um, I became more suspicious. I think I had always had something of a suspicion of certain kinds of leftism. I remember having a fight with a friend over whether it was all right to steal like software from um, the university's computer library. I thought it was not, right? So even then I believed in property rights more than a lot of uh, people to my left. Um, but I think that I, it's interesting because I'm, I'm much less doctrinaire than I was at 24 when I'm having all of these new feelings. <laughs> um, I think that it, it the framework of the left didn't a lot of it didn't seem like it worked to me. It didn't make sense. It didn't hold together. And the thing about libertarianism is it all holds together very cleanly. I think over time, over 20 years of being a libertarian, I still am. But now for me, being a libertarian is much more about like a predilection to distrust the government, a predilection to prize liberty um, over other values a predilection to assume that new government policies are probably not going to work as indeed they usually don't Um, rather than a hard, like you don't have a right to do this. You don't have, you know, I'm not a, an anti-tax nut. I'm not. um, And I, with all due respect to anti-tax nuts, some of my best friends are anti-tax nuts, (laughs) Um, but it's just not me. It's not, that's not where I'm coming from on the movement. It's just a broad kind of predisposition um, some of my some of my friends say you're not really a libertarian anymore. You're more of a Burkean conservative, which is not entirely unfair. But um, on the other hand, I I really I have a lot of things that read as quite left and make my right wing readers uh, really mad, um, like on criminal justice policy, where I really 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 believe in de incarceration. On the other hand, I really really believe in getting getting there by putting more cops on the streets. So even there, I'm not really. <laughs> neither left nor right, neither fish nor fowl, nor good red herring. What is uh, what is a Burkean conservative? Um, someone who is not against progress, but sort of cautions, has a respect for kind of embedded cultural tradition as containing a lot of valuable information about the past. Right? Is that if you assume that social institutions are selected for a certain degree of fitness. Not, I think, there's a a kind of strong version of this, which I think is false, which is that all all social features serve a purpose. Um, I don't think that's true. And there's a great anthropological book called Six Societies, which I highly, highly, highly recommend to people. It's sort of sad reading. It's about really dysfunctional uh, sort of different kind of cultural uh, practices, but it sort of disabuses you of the idea that every any cultural trait you identify has a good reason for existing. But that said, societies which make disastrous cultural experiments have to abandon them 
because otherwise they won't survive. And so when you look at the things that we're already doing, you have to assume that in the universe of things that could be tried, the stuff we're already doing probably on average better than the stuff we're not doing just because um, now circumstances can change. For example, I think if you say, you know, um, you look at kind of sexual morality of the Victorian era makes a lot more sense than we now give it credit for because unwanted babies were a disaster and who's, you know, a woman with a child is not a viable economic unit. And, you know, society has an interest in keeping that from becoming the norm. Um, But that said, when birth control happens, then the ban on premarital sex just makes a lot less sense. Right. So things like that, it's not that circumstances can't change. It's that you should just assume you should always be cautious before you start kind of wrecking the machinery without understanding what its purpose is and therefore why it's it's good to change. So it's a kind of a, a believing in progress, but also believing in a certain amount of like skepticism towards the next big thing, um, especially in terms of cultural change. When you began blogging in November of uh, 2001, you called your blog live from the WTC, meaning the World Trade Center. Uh, were you yep. being Were you being paid for that at that time? Uh, and why did uh, you Why did you call the blog live from the WTC? So, in the supreme irony of my life as a libertarian columnist, my father was a lobbyist, and, and every time I would say something mean about lobbyists, he would write me an email and be like, "You know what paid for college, right?" Um, <laughs> So uh, what my father was a lobbyist for was about the most justifiable kind of lobbying, which is he ran a trade association for the heavy construction industry. And the heavy construction industry, by definition, this is roads, bridges, asphalt plants, and so forth. Um, That is the stuff that, by definition, I think, because I'm not an anarchist, is going to be done by the government. And you're going to need people to represent, you know, your company's interests to the government because there's all sorts of you're doing contract negotiations and so forth. So that's what my dad did. And one of his clients, when the World Trade Center on 9-11 came down, they happened to be doing work on the West Side Highway right across the street. And so as soon as the dust cleared, they ran back to their machines, picked them up, moved them across the street, and started frantically digging through the rubble trying to get survivors out. They ended up as one of the disaster recovery firms. There were four disaster recovery firms at Ground Zero, and they ended up as one of them. And I ended up doing clerical work in a construction trailer for that firm for a year. And when I started the blog, I thought I'm having, I'm living through this like world historical experience. Now I'm a very tiny part of it, right? I'm just processing payroll and making ID badges for people. I'm not doing anything particularly fancy or important, but I'm, I'm, I'm seeing something that most people can't. I should blog about that. And what I realized is I can't really blog about that. I'll get fired. So instead, as it happened, uh, but that's why I called the blog live from the WTC. And as it turned out, um, very quickly, something happened that I could blog about, which was in 2002, there were a bunch of accounting scandals. And there wasn't a lot of outside of like the Wall Street Journal. There weren't a lot of people in journalism or in general who understood accounting at all. There just weren't a lot of people writing about that. It's funny to think now when we're used to the idea that you know, every you go into Twitter, you go into blogs, you go into Tumblr, whatever. There's going to be a bunch of accountants there who will just talk about what's happening. But in 2002, this was new. And so I just started explaining what does it mean that MCI WorldCom, which was this big tech firm, had capitalized its operating expenses. Do we need another law against that? No, as it turns out, we didn't because it was already really illegal. It was just a straight fraud. It was not fancier than that. Um, and so I, I started writing about that instead, but the blog name stuck um, until I left the World Trade Center and changed the name to Asymmetrical Information. Why did you write uh, with the pen name Jane Galt? Uh, that is a story I, I, I regretted a little bit because it, it makes people think I'm an objectivist. Now, I do, in fact, like the novels of Ayn Rand, but I don't like them as a model of how he, actual human beings can live, which is, I think, where objectivists go off the rails i you know i think what's to me what's good about them is she's actually really good at kind of explaining because she witnessed it she she um left soviet russia uh in her teens having witnessed the the first five years of um of marxism leninism um so she's really good at explaining kind of how societies collapse 
She's really interesting on those things. She's really interesting on the inter on sort of interlocking economics of business. She's really interesting on a kind of heroic vision. Um, the part that I don't think is very realistic is her kind of obsession with how great selfishness is. But the part I do think is great is actually her obsession with the idea that every human being should be trying to live up to the heroic in themselves and kind of be their highest and best selves. Um, I find that very appealing. But I'm not an objectivist. Sorry, it was a long-winded answer. What's that, anyway, what in, is an objectivist, <laughs> by the way? This, so is a follower of Ayn Rand, the people who really, you know, they believe that she has outlined the way that human beings should live. I do not. But uh, in 1996, I was on the New York Times forums, and I wanted to re- reply to some guy who is really far to the left, and he would call everyone who was to the right of, like, Chairman Mao, he would call them a randroid. And I wanted to respond to something he'd said, and I had to make a, um, I had to make a username to log in. And I thought, oh, this will make him mad. So then I picked that username, and then it became my email because no one had it. Again, this is 1996, back in the dark ages when email was new. So I got janegalt at hotmail.com, and then I got janegalt at gmail.com when Gmail came around. And when I started my blog, I just my username was Jane Galt. And then when I realized I didn't want to do this under my name because I was trying to find a real job, I just graduated from business school and I needed I was trying to find a career. So I tried to make myself anonymous. It didn't work. I was quickly discovered who I was, so it was not a useful effort. But um, I chose Jane Galt literally just because it was my username, and I chose the username literally just because I was trying to make someone mad in a forum in 1996. Really a silly answer. <laughs> As we're talking, just a few hours ago, they announced the new executive editor of the New York Times, Joe Kahn. Yes. Uh, and when you read his background, um, it fits a certain image that uh, you're not surprised that uh, he ends up as the executive editor of the New York Times. He's a Harvard graduate. He comes from a, he's a rich family. Uh, I can go down the list. I think his father had something to do with found, founding Staples. But my point is, <clears throat> what's the difference between the New York Times editorial op-ed page and the Washington Post op-ed page for people that now can read it all over the country, all over the world, as far as that goes, with digital? Um, you know, that's a good question. So I think for one thing, we're bigger. Uh, we have more columnists than, than the, the Times does. Um, I think we're a little broader, although I think that, you know, the many fine columnists at the at the New York Times, I mean, just to name two who I like, who I, I kind of personally friendly with, Ross Douthat on the right, uh, Jamal Bowie on, on the left, lots of great people at the Times. So I don't mean to, to denigrate the competition. Um, but I think that we just by kind of numbers, um, they're a little more pointed. I think we're a little more ideologically diverse um, than they are. Just we have more people uh, with more points of view, um, but they've got a lot of great writers there, obviously. So, um, In your experience, what column or something you've written has gotten the biggest response? Uh, oh, gosh. Well, the biggest positive response um, – I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to post columns. I've never been doing this for 20 years, so there's a lot in there. <laughs> um, the biggest positive response was an essay that I wrote on pie, and I have a really strong opinions. One of my sort of side hobbies is that uh, I like to write about food, and um, I did an essay on American pie and why why pie is kind of as American as apple pie. It is why is it our national dish. And why are we losing the ability to make our national dish, which I think is a real tragedy and something that I would like to see reversed. Um, and that's a story, as it turns out, of cultural change to some extent, but really a lot about technological change, about women cooking less, but also about what gets easier and harder to make relatively. So if you think about in the 19th century, say something is as easy as pie actually makes sense. Pie is easier than a cake. Cake takes phenomenal physical effort to make for one thing they didn't have leavening until the middle of the 19th century and then there's no auto, there's no stand mixers you've got to mix you got to beat all of that stuff by hand but in the 20th century we get electric tools that do that and so cake is really easy to make i can you know with good instructions almost anyone can make a really decent layer cake um with minimal skill but pie is a skilled art 
and it's time consuming now compared to making a cake. And so we do it less. So that was, but I mean, it just brought on a flood of people saying thank you, sharing their memories of the pies that they had made with their family, or if they weren't making them with their mother. I think pie is just incredibly visceral for people who grew up in a good, in a family with a good pie tradition as I did. Um, it's just one of the most visceral things of remembering the mom putting it on the windowsill to cool and then, cut, you know, waiting and cutting into it and all of that. So that was great. Um, also, my COVID columns, um, I got a lot of I was one of the early people who said, I really think this is serious and I really think we have to worry about this. Column I wrote on exponential growth and how the kind of the nature of exponential growth is that it's basically invisible until it becomes overwhelming, uh, something that we have learned to our sorrow. Uh, in the last few years, that got a huge response because I think there were a lot of people who didn't. It was it was kind of a um, it was kind of a scary column for me to write because I early in March of 2020, I was looking around. I was really worried, and I had a kind of background chat with people who were really worried. But most people were really not worried, and they thought I was crazy. And so I thought, am I going to turn out to be the, the person who wrote the crazy column saying COVID's a big deal and then it's a nothing burger? Maybe. But I have to say what I think. Um, and so I said, you know, look, I think I think this is a real problem. And here's why I think this is a real problem. And I think there were a lot of people, two groups of people who really reacted to that column. And one was the group of people who hadn't who'd been unsure whether they should worry who had been, yeah, maybe, but I don't know, I'm confused, and that really clarified it for them. And then there were another group of people who were themselves worried but could not convince their relatives. And so, and indeed, I had this problem um, with my mother. I sent her my column. It didn't help because, you know, profit in your own land. Um, it is hard to convince anyone who's, who changed your diapers of much of anything. Um, but trying to convince relatives that, no, actually, even though everything looks fine, it's not fine, and we need to start social distancing. And so I got a really positive response for that. On negative responses, oh, gosh, <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> um, you know, and I will say, actually, a column that I think is a funny non-response um, and really worth highlighting, because I think this is an issue that the media has been afraid to tackle, I inadvertently self-assigned to the Leah Thomas beat. Uh, Leah Thomas is the Penn trans swimmer. I didn't really have strong opinions on the matter of whether um, Leah Thomas should be swimming with the women or not. But it seemed to me, what I did have strong opinions on was that I, I thought there were some bad arguments about, well, can we even know that, that trans women have a, bio, have a biological advantage over cisgender women? And I think we can know that. That doesn't necessarily tell you whether Thomas should be allowed to swim. I think that that depends on the size of the advantage and a bunch of other kind of judgments that you have to make about what the rules should be. Um, but I just thought we have to talk about this. And, and what I was observing in the media was that everyone was terrified. And I've, I've heard this from people. You know, I thought about writing about that. And then I just I I I, I decided I should write about something else. And And I almost did that. You know, I was right, about to write the column, and I thought, you know, I should do more research and write about something else. And I thought, no, I don't need more research. What I need is a backbone. And the interesting thing was I ended up writing two more columns on the topic because then Penn Swimmers' parents reached out to me, and, you know, I went up to Ivy's to observe um, a bunch of, uh, you know, the, the whole what it actually looks like uh, to see the competition. I learned a lot about swimming. Um, and in the course of reporting this, though, uh, people would, would say, gosh, you're so brave, with the implication that my bravery was about to cost my job. And people would ask me after the column published, what was the reaction? Has it been terrible? And you know what? No. I, you know, I think I tried to write empathetically. I didn't you know, come out and say, you know, I didn't, I didn't say trans women aren't women. I, you know, I, I just said, I, you know, I think this is a complicated issue that we have to work through. But I got I, I didn't get the kind of overwhelming response, anger, rage that people were expecting. And I think that that's a good lesson for a lot of us is we're often I was because it seemed so sensitive because I had seen other people like Jesse Single be the target of a lot of outrage. I was afraid. I think a lot of people were afraid. And then I did it. I had total institutional support. The Post said, we want you to write about this. Um and I got a good response, not a bad response. And I think that's just a really, really good lesson for all of us is that often we don't do things 
we don't say things that we think are true because we're afraid. We don't do things that we think we should do because we're afraid. And then, you know, even with something really sensitive, it is possible to do it and not, you know, um, and, and not get canceled over it. And that was, was I think, a, a worthwhile thing to point out is there's a lot of diversity of opinion on this issue. There are a lot of people who really who wrote me and said, thank you. Thank you for saying this, because I've been thinking along similar lines and I've been afraid and now I'm not afraid. One of the if you look around for Megan McArdle on the Web, one of the things that has more personal information than any place else is Norm blog. Do you remember Norm blog? <laughs> oh my gosh, so long ago. Two thousand <laughs> two thousand and seven. Norm blog. Norm Garris is no yes. longer alive. He died in two thousand thirteen. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, and you know, in this era of wokeness, I'm not sure I'm even allowed to ask this, but you say it yourself. What's the impact of being six two? Um, there's a lot of impact of being six two. <laughs> um, I mean, and, and I will say this is actually something that I have communicated. I think has helped me with reporting on Thomas, among other things is that I have had a lifelong experience of being misgendered. And it was funny, I was at the, I was at the Ivy's reporting on Leah Thomas. I was misgendered like 20 times that weekend. Partly because everyone's bundled up, it was cold out, everyone's wearing masks, but constantly people were calling me sir. Um, and so that's given me an enormous amount of sympathy for just how emotionally ravaging it must be um, to have people, to have you know, people going out there saying, you know, Leah Thomas isn't a woman, she's a man. Um, I think it's I think you get taken a little more seriously, certainly younger. When I was 11, I was being mistaken for a 21 year old. I was playing tennis at some resort. I don't even remember how I got into this resort. I must have been on vacation with someone else's family. My family didn't go to places like that. But um, and I was playing tennis with just a random woman who was there. And at the end, she she said something that just sort of suggested I was in college. And I said, how old do you think I am? She said, oh, I figure you're about my daughter's age. She's 21. I was like, oh, my gosh. How tall were you at that age? Grade. At 11. Uh, I was done growing at the end of seventh grade. I was 6'2". Um, and so the bad thing about that is that people expect you to be more like an adult and also you stick out. I was the tallest person in my high school until I was um, until I was a senior. And a boy transferred in, and he was a 10th grader. Um, people expect you to be older. They expect you, they expect you to be more serious, uh, but they then give you the benefit of the doubt, right? They treat you more seriously. They treat you um, not like a kid. And so I think when I was in high school and I wanted to be one of those, like, adorable little girls that people <laughs> – um, but, you know, the funny thing is I said this to my mother, and she said, it wasn't your height. It was you. <laughs> <laughs> You're just not one of those girls. Um, but later on, it was an advantage. But it, it definitely, I think, good and bad has impacted my life from silly things. Like, it's really difficult to find clothes. For men, you know, things come in different inseams. And there has since the Internet, thank God, such a revolution. Um, but when I was in high school, women's clothes came in one inseam, and it was about four to six inches too short for me. And so I had the choice of wearing men's clothes, which didn't look good, or wearing things too short. And I, I was talking to someone who was saying, you were such a fashion pioneer. You know, you were wearing low rises and capris like a decade before anyone else. And I said, this is, that wasn't a fashion choice. Those were my pants. Like, those, um, and so and that does it makes you very self-conscious. It, was, it made things much harder when I was younger. But I think as I grew into like my mid-20s, um, it was it made things easier in some ways because you 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 command a room when you're six foot two. No one ever loses sight of you, <laughs> and people have never treated me. I've never, almost never. I shouldn't say that. I rarely have the thing that women get of being talked down to, of being talked to like they're young, or naive, or like people don't treat me that way because I'm six two, and you just don't get that kind of protective instinct. Of like, oh, this is a this is a, a delicate little thing that needs to be taken care of and told how the world works. When you were uh, talking to Norm on the Norm blog back in 2007, I'll just run through a couple of things. You said your 
best novel you've ever read was either Anna Karenina or Heart of Darkness. That your favorite song was Bolero. You said right now. I'm going to ask you if you've changed that. Um, that uh, you say, although you're a social liberal and a public about face that you took, you told us earlier, on the Iraq War, and that you were immensely influenced by Friedrich Hayek. Uh, any of mm-hmm. those that I mentioned, do you want to change your mind on them or add to it? No, I still, um, I still love, I think the opening passage of Heart of Darkness is the most beautiful thing um you know there's a moment when uh, the the opening passage well first it's about london on the river um and then it is about uh talking about when he's a child and of course this is uh, you know this is written in in the late teens early 20s i don't remember the exact date anyways it's someone who is the narrator is supposed to be someone who's a child in in the 19th century and talking about in Africa, there's just all this white space because we hadn't mapped it, because the West had not mapped it. Uh, obviously, the people who were living there knew what, what it looked like, but the West did not. And so the maps would have these blank spaces. Um, and then, um, you know, there's a moment at the end of this opening passage where um, the, the guy looks out over, uh, over London and says, and this, too, has been one of the dark places of the earth. And just how for the Romans, right, this was <laughs> this was terra incognita, literally. Um, it's just amazing. It's just, I mean, it's amazing that this is a, just a, Joseph Conrad, whose first language was not English. Um, and just the ideas and the depth and the richness of it, it's still my favorite thing to read. Um, Bolero, I, I'm still fond of uh, Bolero. It's of uh, Maurice Ravel. It's a really interesting um, piece because it seems like it was composed. He developed a kind of cognitive problem, um, which among other things, I believe affected his hearing, but it, what they think that this may be, this piece is basically, it starts with one instrument playing one, um, line of a composition. And then it just keeps adding one more instrument and one more instrument. And they think that it may have something to do with his his neuro, neuro, neurological problems is that it produced a kind of a fixation on repetition. Um, but it's a beautiful piece. And if so, like I'm, I'm sad for Ravel, but I'm glad that in, in you know, the last thing that, um, that it produced was this incredible beauty. Um, so yeah, I will, I will stick with, it. I'm still, I'm still influenced by Hayek. I'm influenced by a lot of things, um, you know, but yes, Hayek is definitely still a formative in, uh, influence on me in many ways. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'll stick with all three. Uh, did, did Hayek t- teach at the University of Chicago? Uh, I believe he did, although... We died in 92. Sure he, was... he died in 92, so... Yes. I'm actually, like, I should have more bio- biographical in- information about him, and I don't. I actually, I just like his work. Now, have you studied the, the difference between John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek as as a split? Yes, I mean, there's there's a famous dispute between them, right? Um, and you know, I I have a lot of respect for both men. I think there's often a tendency to pick one. Um, I think Keynes was right about some things, not necessarily right about other things, and also, I mean, he was. He was, I think, more than Hayek. He's more arrogant than Hayek. He's very convinced that he was right. But, I mean, he was a genius. And um, I think where his genius fell down is actually where I think that a lot of libertarians also fall down, which is that you have to think about how your recommendations kind of fit in human society. And I think that that's... You know, there's a real debate about this, and I remember I asked this question to Luigi Zendales, who is a great economist at the University of Chicago, uh, in finance. He works mostly in finance, and I said to him, the thing that you're advocating could never happen. It would be picked apart by a bunch of interest groups when it tried to get through Congress, and by the time it had gotten through, it would be worse than nothing. And he said, you know, I think there's a real question here do you advocate for like the practical second best or for the thing that you think works best? And I have decided to advocate for the first best solution. 
Um, I think Keynes did that as well. But you know, you you get to problems not with him so much as what his recommendations inevitably produced. So the the kind of central insight that most people are familiar with from Keynes, right, is that you can get into what's known as a liquidity trap, where because everyone's income is someone else's spending, when people are afraid about their incomes and they hunker down and they stop spending, other people are now losing income and everything's getting worse and worse. And so his argument is you get the government in there to kind of – it doesn't matter – he didn't actually say, like, it actually doesn't matter. It's obviously better to spend on better things than worse things. But in, in extremis, you could just have pay people to dig holes and fill them up again. The main thing is that you kind of stop this this, this contraction. Um, and the problem with that is not Keynes so much as that it became an argument for endless deficit spending is that people didn't do the thing that is actually inherent in the recommendation, which is when things are bad, you spend more money than you have. And when things are good, you spend less money than, you can, than you're taking in on taxes and pay down the money that you spent before. And, of course, it, it ended up as a kind of one-way ratchet. And there are real questions about um, that. There are a lot of also technical questions about how well stimulus works and so forth. But the, the central problem, I think, is that often he was advocating things that, however practical – However, right, were not practical, or could not be implemented by human institutions as they exist. This is a general problem with economists, however, so not unique to him. There's another um, moment in your life, um, and, and part of what I, reason I want to ask you about this is because of the power um, and your own politics. But if you walk near the White House, the old Riggs Bank has a think tank in it called New America. Uh, and you were the Bernard L. Schwartz fellow there for a while. Mm-hmm. Bernard L. Schwartz is a huge contributor to the Democratic Party. I think he's still alive in his 90s. And he was involved with the Loral Satellite Company. and He founded it. But um, why did you go to New America? What were the politics of the New America Foundation? And what is the power of a think tank in Washington? Well, I mean, I think the the reason they, they wanted ideological diversity, which is, I, I think, great. Right? There's, I wish there were more of that in Washington. Um, and what they wanted, they supported me writing my book. Uh, I wrote a book on failure um, and how how to think about failure, how to fail better, why failure is kind of really cr- critical to succeeding, um, how you, know, you, you can't really have one without the other. Um, and they supported it, and they were great. And yeah, I met a lot of other really smart people who worked there. They they just historically had a very broad brief and a lot of different programs. Um, and, uh, and you know, they supported a lot of young kind of thinkers who were interested, interesting and interested in doing something. Um, I think think tanks play a critical role in Washington, although I worry that they're, they're often not playing that role as much as they used to for various reasons of the way the political parties have evolved. Um, but you need – it's all very well to – this actually goes back to what we were saying about academics, right? Academics, for a bunch of reasons, have a lot of incentives to always be thinking about first best, right? Because they're – they're competing in a kind of status economy with other other academics and the way that you win that status battle, not unfairly. It's to say the thing that you, is to come up with the absolute best kind of in theory um, answer. And I think you see this in areas as diverse as pharmaceutical development, where you, know, you frequently hear people saying, well, academics do all the real work of drug discovery. You know, the pharmaceutical firms are just putting a label on it. And that's not true. What academics do is a lot of really important basic research where they're identifying targets. They're finding something completely novel, right? And that's really important work. What they don't do a lot of is the kind of grinding work of finding a candidate that hits that target out of a zillion different candidates and then figuring out how to dose that candidate and doing all of the clinical trials for it, right? That work gets done by industry, and they're both really important parts of drug discovery. Um, but they prioritize the thing that is the most novel, the most kind of intellectually interesting, right? And what think tanks do is take those ideas, and you know the people in them are often trained in academia. They have PhDs, 
but it turns it into it, it makes the second often they make the second best calculation a little bit more they say okay well in ideal theory what we would like is to have this wonderful fiscal policy where when we're in a recession we're borrowing money and spending it and then when things are good we have a concerted program to pay down the debt right and think tanks say well okay but how would that actually work in the real political process what can i what sorts of legislative language would I have around that? What sorts of institutions would it would would require that? Right? It, they do that really like little that tweaking work that turns the great target into a workable treatment for the American Republic, and it, both kinds of things are really valuable. Um, and I think that's why I worry sometimes that you know for various reasons. For one thing, there's a lot of pressure pushing institutions to be more partisan and to kind of play on the team and to not criticize other people on the team. And that makes the teams weaker, right? If you can't, Matt Iglesias, who writes a great newsletter on politics called Slow Boring, not a great name for a newsletter, but a great newsletter. Um, It is not at all boring, and I highly recommend it to listeners. Um, He said that, you know, that this kind of on the left, this compulsive allyship this never never denigrate any plan that anyone else in the coalition is putting forward never try to fight and say this should be a priority priority and not that say everything should be a priority but that actually makes it harder to do normal politics because in fact you have to set priorities and you have to decide which things are more important and which things are more likely to work than other things um and so that those pressures, the fact that donors don't want to often don't want to fund just the basic boring operation of these places, right? They want to fund the specific issue I am interested in. They want to fund, um, you know, this guy who I really like. Instead of saying I want to fund you to have a payroll department <laughs> and all the things that they need, I want to give you money to go out and find new talent who are working on interesting issues in my broad ideological predilection, in my broad issues of interest, but I don't know what the exact person or the exact issue is. They don't want to fund that stuff. They want to have a ton of control. And that actually makes the institutions weaker and less good at their job of actually doing the work of, of, of putting policy bones on, a, on you know, politi- political theory. When Norm asked you about <clears throat> your biggest uh threat to the future back in 2007, you said the widespread dissemination of nuclear weapons. And at the same time in that discussion, he asked you about the UN, what did you think of it? And you said about what has been done already, make it into sort of a glorified student council where everyone can talk seriously about what should be done without having any responsibility or power or to actually do it. And the reason I bring those into the conversation is obvious. Ukraine. And um, why back then, long time ago, were you concerned about nuclear weapons? And have you changed your mind about the UN? Um, No, I don't think the UN is very useful. Um, But because I think it it ends, I mean, it's, I guess, useful as a meeting place where people can come and say the thing that they were already going to do. But ultimately, you know, the great powers are not going to allow like Suriname to have a vote on what they're going to do and whether they should or not. This is not a, you know, it's like not a normative question. It's just, they're not going to. And so I think that just limits the effectiveness of the UN. It can be a kind of legitimacy building mechanism, but I don't think it works very well with that. Um, And it, it definitely does not bind the great powers in the way that was hoped when it was, it was designed. Um, in terms of nuclear weapons, why was I worried? A couple of things. I think I had been thinking a lot about mutually assured destruction in, during the run-up to the Iraq War, which, as we now we may remember, um, was supposed to be about weapons of mass destruction until we didn't find any. Um, and here's the thing about mutually assured destruction is that it works as well as it works. You know, we maybe we got lucky. <laughs> um, but it works because you, it's, it's bilateral or trilateral. It's a, it's a small number of players who have a lot of incentive to develop ways to de-escalate, right? And the more nuclear weapons proliferate, 
the the harder that gets because there's now there's more players in a game, right? And you see this in you see this in game theory where it's just it's relatively easy to design games that two player games that you can win and when you get into multiplayer games everything just gets real unstable because there's just too many actors, right? And they're every time you add another person, you think about when you're doing a two player game, right? You're just calculating what's that guy thinking? And it can still go wrong, but you only have to think about one problem. And now when you add another player, it's not just what's that guy thinking, it's what's that guy thinking, what's that girl thinking. And then you have to think, but what's that guy thinking about what that girl is thinking? And what's that girl thinking, right? Like it, it, every time you add another player in, it multiplies the complexity of the situation. And now to some extent, the fact that it is still true that the dominant nuclear powers on Earth are the United States and Russia and China. Um, that that reduces the complexity somewhat, right? But when you get third and fourth and eighth and 20th parties in there, a lot of things happen. First of all, right now, if one of the very small number of nuclear uh, powers explodes a nuke, we know where it came from. And we can say, we can say it to North Korea, which is, right, um, working on its nuclear program. If you, we, we all have a lot more nuclear weapons than you do, and we will destroy you should any of those bombs go off anywhere. Right. Um, but when you have so many people who have them, well, if there's an explosion somewhere, where did it come from? Who did it? Right. You actually get into trouble where it's hard to mutually assure destruction because you can no longer assign responsibility so easily. Um, but also it just means that it's more likely that someone who doesn't have enough internal controls is going to get their hands on a nuclear weapon and use it. So um, and nuclear weapons are the most terrifying, still the most terrifying weapons we have. Um, and they're terrifying weapons in part because they're directional, right? Um, a pandemic, as we have discovered, is not really a weapon that you can unleash on the world and then not be affected yourself, um, which is why the biological and chemical weapons are less scary. I mean, they're, they're still pretty scary, but um, as it turned out, you know, we, we tend to think that the reason we don't use uh, gas in war is that we learned how morally horrible it was, but we did a lot of morally horrible things in World War II. Actually, it turned out that gas wasn't terribly tactically useful because once you gas somewhere, it's, it's kind of hard to send your troops in. Um, and infantry and bombs just do a better job than gas. Similarly, with biological weapons, they're too hard to control. They're, they may be useful for you know like sending anthrax to one person, but it's actually very hard to use a biological weapon that doesn't blow back on you if the wind changes. Um, or that doesn't end up in your country. But nuclear weapons are a sort of thing where you can just kill a bunch of people and they can't kill you um, unless you are attacking a nuclear power or enraging a nuclear power. And and that is why they are different, and I still think they are the greatest risk to humanity. We could do ter ourselves terrible, terrible, terrible damage um, if we don't keep our nuclear proliferation under control. A couple quick last questions. <clears throat> Fifteen years ago, you weren't married. You were thinking about... The need to have a possible house, a car, travel some more. You did not want a lot of things. What's happened in those 15 years? Oh, gosh, so many things. Uh, so I, funnily enough, I had in 2007, I had moved to Washington after a terrible, terrible breakup. It's detailed in my book. It's not like new gossip. Um, but uh, I came down here temporarily. I ended up getting a job at the Atlantic. And then I thought I was in my early, to, I was in, I was 33, I guess, when I came down. So 34 when I finally moved here. And so I said, oh, well, maybe I'll just never get married and I have to like build my exciting single, single girl life. So I thought about all of this and I'm like, I'm, you know, here's my travel and I'm going to have like a fabulous apartment, but it's going to be small and manageable. And then I immediately after I've done all of this, met the man I was going to marry. Um, <laughs> I got married. We moved in together in 2008. We got engaged in 2009. We got married in 2010. Um, we acquired a house six months, six weeks after we got married. Um, and now we've got a lot of stuff, but and we have two dogs, which is wonderful. Uh, one of them is in fact sitting next to me right now as I, uh, finish this interview up. Um, we have two bull mastiffs, a boy and a girl. And, uh, you know, we do travel, uh, not obviously recently. We're still trying to figure out, we're supposed to have this wonderful European holiday. Uh, for our 10th anniversary in 2020, 
obviously did not happen. We're does, still trying to figure out when we're going to do that. Does he still write for the uh, Libertarian Reason magazine? He does. He he is a he is a senior editor at Reason magazine. Um, he also writes a excellent cocktail newsletter, um, which, along with Matt Iglesias' newsletter, I highly commend to all of your readers. It's about home cocktail making. Um, it is called Cocktails with Suderman, because my husband's name is Peter Suderman. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, like, because I'm a food hobbyist and he's a cocktail hobbyist, we, in theory, could be giving great dinner parties if it weren't for the stupid pandemic. Um, and, uh, yeah, we like to entertain but we really we really love our dogs and our house and like cozy reading um and going out and to eat and, and drink um but it's so my life in some ways is i think what i thought it would be but in other ways it's much better how many certainly t- different how many times a week do you write your column and where can people find it um i write a column twice a week uh or more at the washington post if you Google Washington Post and Megan McArdle, you will find me. Um, I have my own landing page where you can read all of my columns. Um, but I'm also featured on, on our on Washington Post Opinions homepage from time to time, um, along with a lot of amazing other writers who you should. I'm not going to start naming names because I will leave out someone that I love. And then I will feel like, you know, the mother who has who has uh, ignored one of her favorite children. So I will just say that we have just so many great writers at the Washington Post. And um, and if I may say, subscriptions, fabulous deal at Amazon Prime, because we are owned by Jeff Bezos, uh, full disclosure. And so um, please check us out, because we've got, there's just so many good things to read right now. And you, I, because I love all of everyone uh, in the audience, I want you all to read all the great stuff where we have available. Megan McArdle, thank you for the hour. Appreciate it very much. <laughs> thanks for thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.